Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medella, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medella, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hello, I'm Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, the show where we question all of our assumptions about culture, including that only the manliest of insufferable and pretentious he-men can host shows like this one and stake a claim to vast intellectual terrain. When insufferable and pretentious women who won't shut up about their PhDs all the time, we can do it too. We just don't get $100 million for it. Oh, hey. So we got a huge response to last week's show on the red pilling of yoga world. And along with the response came a question. What's up with This is Critical? And I get it. Miss America, the history of emotions, Montel Williams, athletes, and pseudoscience— How does all this work together? Well, unless you're in the show's awesome cult following, and I'm sending love and anti-namastes down the airwaves to all of you, thank you, thank you, you may have wondered this too. So I'm going to tell you today, what is up with This is Critical? Now it can be told. The idea for This is Critical came as I was working on my last podcast, Trumpcast. I realized that people on the left, like myself, were brooking every new grenade in the culture wars. But only white men on the right or center right, like Joe Rogan and Ben Shapiro, were lecturing for hours on end about culture. MMA, opera, Batman, these are some Shapiro-Rogan favorites. And then, of course, scientific racism, ivermectin, and how dumb women are. This seemed wrong to me because the wildest and most compelling ideas in culture are, as usual, coming from progressives. We just don't talk about them enough. So I set out to make a show that didn't just diagnose right-wing ideas as bad. They're, they're bad, you can see. It ignored them altogether in favor of ideas from new quarters. Indigenous archaeology, the idea of innocence, the Hallmark Channel, the abortion pill— I mean, American politics may be in trouble, but American culture's in the ICU. How in the world, for example, did huge swaths of people decide that a simple wearable sneeze guard was some kind of political provocation? A Kleenex is not a provocation. Not wanting to die of a disease is not a political position. How did people decide that the multiply jailed domestic abuser and basketball reality star has-been Dennis Rodman was a plausible, dignified person to oversee a summit between the U.S. and North Korea, all while wearing a T-shirt for Potcoin, the crypto of cannabis? How did people in America decide that a book, like the Pulitzer Prize-winning Beloved, should be burned, or that any book should be burned? 
Looking over all these convulsions in public life, I thought that instead of dicking around with the downstream effects of cultural confusions, anti-vax spirituality, incel terrorism, a handmade gallows for Mike Pence, we might go to the source, to the cultural phenomena before they harden into nonsense wars. I also wanted to reclaim the Ideas podcast from the right and make it clear that you don't need a diversity initiative to find intellectuals who are not white or not men or not arrogant conservatives. In fact, that's the overwhelming majority of us. So I chose to invite these actually interesting people onto a podcast to talk about real new ideas. Ideas to set free all the American minds held hostage by the stultifying culture forever wars. So that's This is Critical. Today's guest is an extremely distinguished academic and the author of the forthcoming book, Politics and Literature at the Dawn of World War II. It's out in December from Bloomsbury. He's also one of the ranking experts on James Joyce's masterwork, Ulysses, which was published exactly 100 years ago this month. Ulysses, if you have a friend who's read it, they've probably told you it's a very difficult novel. But it's also just the story of one seemingly average day in the life of Leopold Bloom, an ad agent, his wife Molly, the young Stephen Dedalus, and a bunch of other characters Bloom encounters in his daily rounds. Thousands of students have enrolled in my guest's classes and virtual lectures on Ulysses, which he does for the teaching company. Today, he'll be sharing his expertise with us. So welcome to This is Critical, James Heffernan, Emeritus Professor of English at Dartmouth College. I mean, (laughs) Dad. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, So our North Star today, and I'm so looking forward to talking to you, I can barely contain myself. Our North Star question today is, how is the novel Ulysses relevant in February 2022, which is the 100th anniversary of its publication? And, and I want to start by talking about the period we're in right now, a period of book banning, of all things. So various schools and libraries, as you know, have banned books like The Kite Runner by Khaled Hosseini and Beloved by Toni Morrison. And then others have banned books like To Kill a Mockingbird for its use of racist slurs. Ulysses is one of the signature banned books of the 20th century. Why was it banned and who banned it? Well, it was uh, banned chiefly because of its obscenity. Uh, it does use all the dirty words, uh, the F word and uh, you know, various others that we're familiar with. Uh, and in fact, when... Uh, Chapters of it began to appear, the Nazika chapter, for instance, would, uh, would appeared in the little review that was published by Harriet Weaver, who is one of Joyce's sponsors. It, it, the reaction was so negative from so many quarters that Joyce practically despaired of even getting the book published. And and so it did appear. It was banned uh, in, I, I can't give you the names of people who actually banned mm-hmm. it, but it was certainly banned in Britain and America, you know, to begin with. It didn't appear in America until 1934, a full dozen years after initial publication. Hmm. It's interesting that, uh, of course, in this age of uh, book banning, we also have book burning. And I understand that a, uh, a pastor in, uh, in Tennessee, in a suburb of Nashville, had actually presided over a burning of books, including Harry Potter, of all things, <laughs> not long ago. Uh, so book burning is alive and well. And I, I, frankly, I see book burning as the, uh, as the descendant 
of people burning. Provocative people like Joan of Arc were once burned at the stake. And now, uh, you know, ordinary civilized people can't burn uh, others, but we can burn their books. Mm. Uh, interestingly, I don't think uh, Joyce's Ulysses was ever burned. Indeed, anybody who did burn it would have burned away several hundred thousand dollars, uh, you know, if the first edition, that that's what it would bring in. Yep. Um, so you mentioned the Nozicaa chapter. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, Nozicaa is this thir- chapter 13. And, and one of the things that might have distressed people is that in that chapter, Bloom masturbates uh, while gazing at the underwear of a young woman named Gertie McDowell. Mm. In any case, it would have been enough to uh, cause the hair of the censors to, to rise from their heads, even though it's also one of the funniest uh, chapters in the book. Because what's happening is that Gertie is gazing with adoration at uh, Bloom. And it, what's it, one of the many things about interesting about this chapter it gives us a new view of Bloom because this is the first time uh, we see Bloom from the outside by someone who really uh, admires him, and we discovered that he's a very handsome man. Mm-hmm. That that uh, she sees him almost as a matinee idol. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, Bloom is so self-effacing. You know, the last thing you would imagine is that he was a a matinee idol, but that's the way she sees him. And uh, she imagines him, she idealizes him, she romanticizes him, she sees him as a gentleman to his fingertips, a man of honor to his fingertips. Mm. And at the very moment when she's imagining him as a man of honor to his fingertips, we, we know what his fingers are doing inside his pants <laughs> as he's gazing on her on her underwear. Good old conversation with my father. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really like getting into the meat of the book because listeners probably are not fresh off having read it, um, if right. they've read it at all. And part of our job here is to encourage people to read it on the 100th um, anniversary of its publication. Exactly. So so maybe you can back up and tell us who Bloom is, uh, why sure. the chapters are given these titles like Nausicaa, okay. and in general, why someone should read this book. Okay. Let's see. Let's start with the chapter titles. Ulysses is a modern recreation of Homer's Odyssey. It's a retelling of the episodes of the Odyssey, uh, which is the story of this ancient Greek hero, uh, this king and voyager, uh, whose name was Odysseus in Greek, who sailed from his island kingdom of Ithaca to join the Greeks in their war against Troy, which went on for 10 years. Uh, It was finally won by the Greeks uh, when Troy was famously invaded through the Trojan horse. I won't go through that whole story. It then takes 10 years for Odysseus to come back home to his island. The Odyssey is the story of Odysseus's return journey to Ithaca uh, after, after the war. And uh, there are a series of episodes uh, in that uh, long story, uh, which Joyce recreates in, uh, in a stunning way. He retells the story, but in unmistakably modern fashion, and I, I give you just one interesting example of what he does with these episodes. And there's one early on in Homer's story when Odysseus is trapped at a cave by a giant uh, who rolls a boulder up to the entrance to the cave. So there's no way that he and his men can escape. And what he figures out, the, the, the way he manages to escape is to blind the Cyclops and then uh, sneak out of the cave because the so, so the giant has to remove the boulder in the morning so as to get let his uh, sheep out. And they manage to slip out of the cave under the belly of the sheep. So the, the crucial point, as it were, of the episode, one of them, is that Odysseus contrives to 
uh, take a long stake of wood and uh, burn the point of it and drive it into the eye of the Cyclops, the one eye, to blind him. So listen to the opening sentence. And you have one, one man who's he's never identified. He's just talking. This is what he says. I was just standing, passing the time of day with old Troy of the DMP, popped there by the corner of Arbor Hill, when be damned with a bloody sweep came along, and if he didn't drive his gear into my eye. So what you have is a man standing in a street corner, a, a chimney sweep comes by, and nearly knocks his gear, his broom, into the eye of the speaker. Okay, <laughs> there it is. There is the whole episode of uh, the Cyclops and Odysseus Traps the Cave, sort of reenacted, evoked in that way. Uh, and this happens hundreds of times. There are all sorts of ways in which Joyce managed to, to modernize these episodes, to make them totally believable. You don't have to have read the Odyssey in order to understand what's going on in uh, Ulysses, uh, although it helps. And of course, the episodes are scrambled, and then they are, as I say, reconfigured in a modern way. Now, back up. Okay, he was Bloom. Of course, we can't assume that everybody listening to this program has read Ulysses. Uh, and one of the daunting, very challenging things about the reading Ulysses is that, and Hugh Kenner, a great critic of uh, Joyce, observed this long ago, uh, is that Joyce really makes no concession to ordinary readerly expectations. In other words, there is no exposition. Virginia Woolf, who is, uh, you know, an extraordinary writer herself and brilliant critic, actually spent some time well before the publication of Ulysses. She read some of the opening chapters uh, because it was presented to her and Leonard Woolf, her husband. They had a small press, the Hogarth Press, and they were offered the chance to publish the book. And, and she said, well, first of all, our press is too small for a book of this size. And secondly, she was put off by its indecency. But she hmm. still had several perceptive things to say about it. However, she get to the chapter seven, which is a set in a newspaper, and she writes she writes comments on almost each of the chapters. And she says in chapter seven, Bloom seems to be the editor of a newspaper. Well, it's a perfectly plausible mistake to make. Actually, Bloom is insulted by the editor of the newspaper. So if you read carefully, you can see he's definitely not the editor. But this is the kind of mistake that that readers often make because we're not given any kind of orientation. Hmm. So, for instance, I could say at the beginning, look, Leopold Bloom is a 38-year-old Dubliner of Hungarian Jewish extraction who makes his living by selling advertising space from a Dublin newspaper. You don't get that, you know, at, at any point at the beginning. You know, he doesn't give you any of that. And more importantly, he's a man living in a state of shock throughout Bloomsday. Just, just interjecting here, Bloomsday, this book, while it follows the logic and the narrative of the Odyssey, doesn't take place over so much uh, over the time of Odysseus's giant voyage. It takes place in a single day. That day it has is. come to be called. It is not called in the book, but has come to be called Bloomsday by fans of the book. Yeah, so th thank you for that clarification. And of course, that's just one of the many audacious things that Joyce does with the plot of the Odyssey, that is, he takes this 10-year story and squeezes it into the space of a single day. But the point is that Bloom, uh, throughout that day, is in a state of shock because he learns very early on that a man named Blazes Boylan, who is a flashy man about town and promoter, and the man who's going to be promoting a concert tour by his wife, Molly, who's a singer. Molly Bloom's wife. Bloom's Molly Bloom, his wife, Bloom's wife, exactly. 
He Bloom learns early in the day that Blazes Boylan intends to commit adultery with Molly. And he knows this uh, uh, from the early on in the day that this is going to happen. And he's burdened with that knowledge throughout the day. And furthermore, I think an extremely important point, again, that all that has to be teased out of chapter eight. There's just one passage in chapter eight, which is about the middle of the day. It's about Bloom having his lunch. While he's having his lunch and drinking a glass of Burgundy and eating a, a Gorgonzola cheese sandwich, and of course in this book you get every single detail like that, he is somehow reminded of the day when he proposed to Molly on Hoth Head, which is a small mountain uh, north of Dublin Bay, and they lay together and rapturously made love, and he proposed to her and she accepted, and he thinks back on this, and then he realizes how much things have changed, and he says to himself, could never like it again after Rudy died. That is, what he's brooding about through much of the day is not simply the fact that Blazes Boylan is going to uh, commit adultery with his wife, but also that his little son, Rudy, died after just 11 days. And he feels responsible for that death. Uh, and then what is, this has left him with a, what's been called secondary impotence. He's been unable to have full sexual intercourse with his wife. Uh, and that has a lot to do with Molly's final monologue and indeed her decision to commit adultery because she has had no sexual satisfaction for 10 years. So Once again, th- 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 once th- again <laughs> listeners, I, my father <laughs> is talking to me about female sexual satisfaction. Um, carry on, carry on, Ross. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but, you know, it's difficult to talk about Ulysses without being frank about (laughs) sexuality. So the point is that some of these crucial points are they are not laid out in any clear cut, explicit way at the beginning of the novel. Of course, now we have all this apparatus of explanation and everything that was unavailable to beginning readers. But uh, if you are going to read the novel, you have to be working at it. Hmm. It's it's a novel that makes immense demands on the reader. There's no question about that, but also offers immense rewards. Uh, and, you know, to, to paraphrase the old saying about, uh, you know, exercise, no gain, no, no pain, no pain, no gain. Uh, so some of that would apply to, to the reading of Ulysses as well. Who knew a famous modernist novel could be so macho? We'll be back with more sex talk with my dad after the break. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with my dad and professor emeritus at Dartmouth, James Heffernan, about the novel Ulysses in celebration of its 100th anniversary. 
in listening to you, and I hope I hope listeners can hear this, there's a way of a kind of total immersion, almost a metaverse mm-hmm. that you're mm-hmm. that you're involved in when you read Ulysses. And yeah. fans of the book, I mean, it's 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 actively difficult for you, Dad, to back up and tell us, you know, just the simple facts of the story without right. going into the Gorgonzola sandwich. I think you didn't yes. mention the the lemon soap, is it? But there, <laughs> yes, yes, there are right. these yeah. little little icons, like they could be. If it's true that it's a little like the metaverse, they're like things that a playable video game character might acquire along the way. Yeah. And it should be pointed out that cosplay, so people who play in costume, cosplay fans of the book go to Dublin every year on Bloom's Day, which is June 16th? That's right. June 16th, and eat gorgonzola cheese at the place that Bloom ate gorgonzola cheese. They go to the restaurant where he got disgusted by meat and and had a revelation he should be a vegetarian. They go buy the soap he bought. It's that kind of novel, and that explains in part why we're in so many rabbit holes here. But the pleasure of rabbit holes is what we're investigating today. And I want uh-huh. you to move beyond the outrage that greeted the book, the banning right. that greeted the book, to talk about people who loved this book, who got it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also touch on the fact that many people who rejected the book, and this is probably true of the new book banners, hadn't really read it. Yeah, this is true. This is true. And even some, uh, you know, celebrated writers uh, that that's true of. I, I can talk about a little about uh, people who were interested, uh, but 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 not uh, utterly won over by it. Yeats, for instance. Uh, this is the Irish poet Yeats. Irish, William Butler Yeats was the, in a sense, the king of, of Irish letters at the time that Joyce was growing up. And when Joyce was 19 years old, he went to see Yeats seeking his approval and, and support, and perhaps financial support. Joyce was always seeking money from anybody who, who would give it to him. And when he went to Yeats, he was only 19 years old, and Yeats was 37 years old. And Yeats told him that what he needed to do was to seek the soul of Ireland in the country people, in the mm-hmm. mind of the peasants. Joyce listened to him for, for a while, and Yeats finally finished and, and thought that he had won over Joyce. And the only thing that Joyce said to him was, how old are you? And uh, Yeats said, I, I was 37, but I, I subtracted a year from my age. I told him I was only 36. And Joyce simply said, you're too old. You're already out of date. Mm-hmm. Said, because the Joyce was even at that point was committed to writing about the city. The city is the place of the, the massive diversity of voices, the labyrinthine streets that allow for a whole uh, you know, infinity of journeys, all the journeys that are taken by the characters of the book. In any case, uh, Yeats was uh, rather cool toward Ulysses. Mm-hmm. At his first reaction, he said, it, it has an Irish cruelty hmm. and also our kind of strength. And the Martello Tower pages are full of beauty, a cruel, playful mind, like a great soft tiger cat. It's an hmm. interesting reaction. Hmm. But in fact, he never finished the book. Hmm. And in June of 1923, more than a year after beginning to read the book, he invited Joyce to stay with him, but also told himself, I shall have to use the utmost ingenuity to hide the fact that I have never finished Ulysses. <laughs> and those out there who may, may have started Ulysses and never finished it may know that you have a kindred spirit in, <laughs> in Yeats. And finally, he said in 1925, a few years later, in, in a, a book called A Vision, he said of Ulysses, the vulgarity of a single Dublin day 
prolonged through 700 pages. <laughs> now, this is the greatest Irish writer of his time mm. dismissing Ulysses. With uh, Virginia Woolf, it's, it's a different story. I think she's much more immersed in it. And, and you know, her re relation, I've written an article about this, her response, her experience of reading Ulysses is absolutely fascinating, you know, as a kind of chapter in literary history. It's one great modernist writer and reader responding to another. And I just want to read you, and this is, this is April of 1919, so it's two years before the publication, nearly two years before the publication of Ulysses. Okay, now here's what she says about Joyce. At all costs, he aims to reveal the flickerings of that innermost flame which flashes its myriad messages through the brain. He disregards with complete courage whatever seems to him adventitious, though it be probability or coherence or any other of the handrails to which we cling for support when we set our imaginations free. Mm. Faced as in the cemetery scene by so much that in its restless scintillations, in its irrelevance, its flashes of deep significance succeeded by incoherent inanities seems to be life itself. Mm. Faced with all that, we have to fumble rather awkwardly if we want to say what else we wish. And for what reason the work of such originality yet fails to compare with Conrad or Hardy. It fails, one might say, because of the comparative poverty of the writer's mind. My God, I mean, I'm just staggered every time I read that because she brilliantly explains the originality of Joyce, his capacity to catch the movement of the mind of his character, the unpredictability of that mind, and yet ends by talking about the poverty hmm. of the, the writer's mind. She too does not finish Ulysses, even though she catches a great deal of what it's all about. And I do want to read, and I know Virginia's a little sherry about my getting into the weeds, but here's a passage that I think you can read uh, with, without really any help, uh, getting inside Bloom's mind, knowing, of course, as we already do by the time we get to this point, that one of the things Bloom is preoccupied with, obsessed with, uh, two things, the, the prospect that uh, Blazes Boylan is going to commit adultery with his wife, and secondly, the death of little Rudy, okay? So what's happening here is that a group of men are in a carriage on the way to a cemetery to bury their friend, Patty Dignam. Bloom doesn't really care anything about Dignam. He's doing this as a friendly gesture. Uh, and in the course of this journey to the cemetery, the carriage actually intersects with Stephen. Uh, Stephen has just come from Sandy Mount Strand. He's been meditating out there. And someone catches, not, not his father, Simon Daedalus, who's in the carriage, but someone else catches sight of him. And as soon as he, uh, as Simon's attention is drawn to the sun, uh, Simon just explodes with wrath because he detests a man named Buck Mulligan, who is one of Stephen's friends. So he says, I won't have her bastard of a nephew ruin my son, a counterjumper's son, selling tapes of my cousin, Peter Paul McSweeney, not likely. All right. So he ceased. Bloom listens to this. He glanced from his angry mustache, that is the face of Simon Dedalus, Stephen's father, to Mr. Power's mild face and Martin Cunningham's eyes. The other men are sitting there. Noisy, self-willed man, he says to himself. Full of his son. He is right. Something to hand on. If little Rudy had lived, see him grow up, hear his voice in the house, walking beside Molly in an Eaton suit, my son, 
me in his eyes. This is, of course, Bloom mm. imagining what his son mm. might have become. And that thought is, of course, provoked by the sight of Stephen Dedalus, who is the grown son of his friend, Simon Dedalus. And after all, the whole novel is going to move toward a meeting of these two people, father and son, Odysseus, uh, sorry, Bloom is to Stephen as to, to a degree, Odysseus is to his own son, mm -hmm. uh, Telemachus, because they finally come together at the end of the Odyssey. So here he is. If little Rudy had lived, see him grow up, hear his voice in the house, walking beside Molly in an Eaton suit, my son, me in his eyes, strange feeling it would be from me, just a chance. Now, at this point, Bloom's mind moves back to the moment when Rudy was conceived. Mm. Must have been that morning in Raymond Terrace, she was at the window, Molly that is, watching the two dogs at it by the wall of the cease to do evil. Cease to do evil is at the Adam and Eve church. Two dogs, at it. she's watching two dogs copulating and the sergeant grinning up, she had that cream gown on with the rip. She never stitched. Give us a touch, Poldy. God, I'm dying for it. Mm. How life begins. Hmm. How life begins. The, just the movement of Bloom's mind. I mean, you know, from, from the rage of Simon Dedalus at his son's f companion, Bloom's thoughts about what Rudy might have become, the moment of his conception, uh, remembering Molly's desire for him. And after all, Molly's desire for him is the driving force of the final chapter, mm -hmm. the Penelope chapter, uh, her, her yearning for a kind of sexual uh, reconciliation with him. We'll get to the great Penelope chapter and, okay. of course, more sex with my dad. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I want, I mean, this is great because it really reminds me and I hope will inspire listeners to realize that this is a demanding book, but the demands pay off in the form That's of right. passages like that one yeah. where you're so deep in Bloom's mind and experience that you, you almost experience it yourself. That's right. And just that intimate tracking with the movement of the mind of a character. Mm -hmm. There's just nothing nothing like it outside of, of novels. So I want to get to how the book influenced books after it. It seems in some ways so singular that it would be impossible to copy. But there are also ways that it seems like literature never quite went back. That's right. Eliot famously said that... It's the most important expression which the present age has found, a book to which we are all indebted and from which none of us can escape. Mm. Uh, and interestingly, one of the first uh, reflections of the influence of Joyce, I would argue, uh, if Virginia Woolf were alive, she probably would disagree. Uh, but it is certainly notable that three years after the publication of Ulysses, we have Virginia Woolf writing Mrs. Dalloway. Also set in a single day. In a single day. In June, and, and one of the bizarre coincidences are truly bizarre because I'm, I'm quite sure Virginia Woolf never read the Penelope chapter of Ulysses. Uh, but one of the things that Molly says near the end of that chapter is she's going to go out and buy flowers. She's going to have her whole mm. uh, apartment filled with roses and so forth. There's this long, rapturous uh, tribute to the power of nature, the beauty of nature and the roses. The very first line of uh, Mrs. Dalloway is uh, something like... Uh, 
Mrs. Dalloway decided she was going to go and buy the flowers herself. That is for the party mm -hmm. that she's going to be giving. Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the things, of course, Wolf does in, throughout that novel, following the consciousness of her central character, mm -hmm. whose mind moves back and forward in, in memory. This is what what uh, Bloom is doing constantly, remembering things, uh, remembering the, you know, the conception of Rudy. So uh, I think there's no question that you know the, maybe the first notable example of the impact of Joyce on fiction, and Virginia Woolf knew more about this than almost anybody else, and and recognized and give her full credit for that, mm -hmm. the originality of Joyce, uh, that it's right there. So you know, Eliot says it's a book from which none of us can escape, and. Uh, that's a, uh, a powerful statement of its influence. I think the other thing, that another point that he makes, uh, which is very important, and, and for us to bear in mind as we are looking at it 100 years later, is that even though Joyce sets the novel in 1904, mm -hmm. uh, he's writing it from 1914 to 1921. Mm -hmm. That's during the First World War, mm -hmm. the most destructive war the world had ever seen. Uh, he's... And what Eliot says is talking about the shape of the novel. Uh, he says that, you know, he uses the myth, the mythical material that he inherits from Homer as a way of controlling, of ordering, of giving a shape and a significance to the immense panorama of futility and anarchy, which is contemporary history. Hmm. We have our own versions of that <clears throat> chaos right now. We haven't had another world war, but we have terrorism and many other horrors. Uh, we have starvation, we have floods, we have uh, displacement, immigration. So there's no lack of chaos to be coping with for an artist to be coping with. I, I think I may have drifted away a little bit from your question. No, 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 not at all. I mean, the, the what's fascinating about uh, Eliot's quote that the that Ulysses represents a way of controlling and ordering and giving mm -hmm, shape mm -hmm. to futility and anarchy. Yes is that hardly anyone would say that this is a feels like a controlled and ordered book. Right, it, right, it's right, always right. represented as almost as chaotic, as crazy, yes. especially by people who don't know it. And one of the things right. I noticed growing up with you and as you became interested in Ulysses and then taught it at, at Dartmouth, and I've run into lots of English majors and alum, alumni who who remember your your course. Um, you inspired uh, those students about it. I don't mean to flatter you, but it, yeah, you inspired a lot of students with it. But then you discovered that it was like, well, I see them these like kind of businessman alpha males who came to look back on what they had missed in their education and then decided they wanted to do the ultra marathon of reading Ulysses to kind of prove they still had it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's such a peak literary experience that if you're going to go back to one book, you know, if you've left your Eng English major behind, you want to go back to one book and test your wits against it. Ulysses is really a good one for that. And why does it work so well that way? Uh, well, I, I would say... One of the pleasures of teaching the course, the seminar, so many years, first of all, the students were self-selecting. They they took the course because they wanted to read Ulysses. But for, for me, one of the pleasures was seeing them make their own discoveries. I would regularly, uh, I'd assign a chapter for each meeting, and I would ask them just to read the chapter without any other aids. Uh, 
including any lecture or anything from me, uh, and make a note on, just write a couple of pages of commentary on anything that struck them as particularly interesting. And I was again and again astonished at how much they were able to see on a first reading. Mm -hmm. And of course, as their uh, knowledge of the book grew, of course, uh, you know, with each chapter, uh, their their powers of, of penetration grew. But I, I want to go back for a second to the point you're making about, you know, the, the fact that often readers imagine that <clears throat> what they're what they're getting is simply chaos. And hmm. you know, oh, yeah. they can't make any any coherent yeah. sense out of it. You know, what, one of the first things to to realize is that in squeezing 10 years uh, into a day, 10 years of Odysseus's travels into a single day, uh, Joyce has modeled his novel on the structure of the day. Well, Ulysses is, in a way, a book of hours. And it hmm. begins very specifically at 8 o'clock in the morning with Stephen having his breakfast, uh, waking up and then having his breakfast at the Martello Tower. And then you get uh, in chapter four, the first Bloom chapter, where Bloom is waking up and he's, he's, he's preparing breakfast for Molly. And the novel goes right through the day until finally the wee hours of the morning. And as Molly is lying there disgorging her monologue, at certain points she hears the clock chiming the wee hours of the morning. Hmm. So you have that structure. You have the three-part structure of the novel as a whole with the first uh, three chapters, the so-called Telemachiad, because they're based on the Telemachus sections of the Odyssey. Um, there are many other chapters that also uh, take their names from the Odyssey. And one of the first things that students do in trying to divine the structure of the book is first uh, maybe pay attention to it as a book of hours, but also simply draw lines between. I mean, one of the first satisfactions is detecting all the evidence of Homer in the plotting in the most unlikely places, as when the sweeper is the Odysseus figure in the Cyclops chapter with his broom. I think that's that's really interesting, just bringing that down to earth. Back to other ways that the book is structured, because I know you're yeah. you're really good at making the structure of the book clear um, when it seems chaotic. Yeah, I, I would say, I mean, part of the fascination, obviously, is is detecting the uh, evocations of Homer, although that'd be, that obviously requires a knowledge of the Odyssey. But the other thing that's fascinating is to see the ways in which uh, Joyce connects Stephen with Bloom, uh, these two characters who are fated to meet uh, but are treated separately. Uh, in the first uh, six chapters, for instance, you have three chapters devoted to Stephen and three to Bloom. And the only point of convergence they have is in that passage near the beginning of the Hades chapter, chapter six, uh, where Stephen is spotted by a friend of Bloom while the carriage is making its way to the cemetery. I, I want to mention a, a corresponding passage in chapter three, uh, and this is Stephen meditating on Sandy Mount Strand. This is a beach uh, near the center of Dublin, and he notices a couple of midwives uh, who are walking along the beach. And he says to himself, one of her sisterhood, or their sisterhood, you know, lugged me squealing into life. And, and I love that Lugby squealing into life. I mean, the, the astonishing thing about uh, Ulysses is, is, of course, the language and how many things he can do with the language because the elegance of the language is, uh, philosophic elegance of the language is absolutely wonderful. And then to say, one of her sisterhood, Lugby squealing into life, 
you know, this is a chapter all about metamorphosis. And one of the most astonishing things is the idea that this creature, Stephen Dedalus, begins his life as a squealing infant and grows up to be able to say, intellectual modality of the visible. I mean, that itself is an astonishing transformation. So far, we've spent a lot of time inside the heads of Stephen Dedalus and Leopold Bloom. But when we return, we'll hear from Bloom's wife, Molly. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. to This is Critical. Today, my irrepressible father is helping us learn to love Ulysses. All right, it's time for the Penelope chapter, the kind of dessert of the book. The Penelope chapter is the final chapter of Ulysses, and if people are going to quote one passage from the book, it's usually this one, especially the final word, the famous yes. Ulysses is a complicated book, but it ends with some of the simplest words in the English language. So, Dad, please tell us about that final Penelope chapter. Well, uh, it is a a really astonishing chapter called A Tour de Force. Uh, Joyce uh, himself uh, said it it was the star turn, uh, you know, of the whole book. He, I think I mentioned, imagined uh, he had first planned to have Molly write a series of letters and then hit upon the monologue, which is the first, uh, with the perfect way of ending the book. It, it is a chapter that uh, you know some people find revolting because, as I say, the language is, uh, is so uh, explicitly obscene, uh, and uh, Molly not only speaks of uh, her sexual activity with Blazes Boylan and the, the number of times that he came with her and so on and so forth, uh, and even imagines at one point uh, Conolingus and et cetera, et cetera. But oh as God. I've said, intimated, <laughs> I'm sorry, here we are. But yeah. as I intimated before, I think, you know, that we, we have to recognize, uh, you know, to see this from Molly's point of view. Up to this point, we have seen Bloom as the, as the suffering husband of Molly and the target of ridicule by various people around Dublin who know that his wife is having an affair with Blazes Boylan. In some ways, he's the, the stereotypical cuckold, except that. Unlike that figure, he knows what's happening at home, and he's not a stupid man. He's not a blind man. He knows what's happening. But we do see him, his side of the story, and it's in Penelope that we get her side of the story, uh, hmm. because this is really the case that she's making, that she has been sexually neglected for 10 years, and that's why she's uh, turning to Blazes Boylan. 
But what's fascinating about the course of her whole monologue is the way she finally comes back to bloom. Uh, mm. First of all, it's, it, this is the first time that she has committed adultery, or first time she's had sex with anybody but Bloom in her whole life. I mean, the, the, there are people who look at the chapter and think, my God, this is an absolutely depraved nymphomaniac. You know, she's <laughs> had every man going. No, no, no. This is the first time in her life that she's ever had sex with anybody but Bloom. And even Boylan, uh, whom she invites to, you know, she, she needs to satisfy this craving, and toward the end of the chapter, it's obvious that she is repelled by his boorishness. And talk about structure. If you look at the last passage in the Penelope chapter, um, there, there, there are no periods in the chapter, but there is a, a long, it's a kind of very long paragraph. It starts with the word no, a series of like hammer beats of the word no that all applied to Boylan. No, that's no way for him to act in this boorish fashion and so forth. No, 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 no. And all that is a prelude to the resounding impact of the word yes at the end of the chapter. I mean, it's just perfectly structured. And the word yes applies to Bloom because what Molly is doing at the end of that chapter is recalling this moment of rapture when Bloom proposes to her and they make love. And the final words are, of course, yes, I will, yes. I said, yes, I will, yes. And Joyce himself thought yes was one of the greatest words of the language, the affirmation of life that comes mm. at the end. And of course, we don't know, uh, you know, at the end of the book, uh, you know, does this mean that uh, they are going to be reconciled in any sense? We don't know that. There's no, no way of knowing that for certainty. I, I like to think that it does, but you can't prove it. And of course, Joyce loved the indeterminacy of life. The last thing mm. he wanted was to foreclose anything, even mm. on a, a necessary positive note. But that's the way it ends. And it has to end. I, I love that. And uh, as you know, at Christmas, you heard me say yes to my fiance, Richard, um, yes, when he that's proposed. Right. Very uh, true. Very it's, true. It, it, is a, it is a great word. So what do you hope that your students, whether they're at the teaching company or they're me or they are your old students at Dartmouth um, or the many people you speak to about Ulysses, what do you hope they take away? I think it's pleasure in the beauty and power of the English language, uh, along, along with everything else. It's, it's just a, it's a symphony of language uh, and life. It's a celebration of life. And, and Bloom is is just uh, uh, he is a man. He he suffers a lot. After all, uh, he suffers the slings and arrows of contempt and ridicule, and he's suffering from. Uh, you know, grief over the death of Rudy, and he's suffering from anxiety over Molly's adultery. But he's wherever he goes, he's celebrating life. His resilience, uh, he's indestructible. Uh, he's the unconquered hero, as he's mm. called at one point, uh, chapter eleven, I think. Uh, is that that the combination of that, the vitality, the irrepressible vitality of Bloom and Molly, of course, uh, and the opulence, the sheer opulence of the language uh, and, and the kind of Shakespearean variety of it. Uh, all, all the voices that speak, you know, it's almost as though Joyce has got all the voices of the world that are speaking in this, uh, in this chapter of street songs and, and right up to the most elegant philosophical language. And it's a book that, you know, somebody has said quite rightly can't be read, but only reread. I mean, it's a book mm. to be reread. Even Virginia Woolf, you know, read twice the opening chapters uh, because she knew there was something more, much more here that could be gotten in a, in a first reading.
I remember reading, and I actually wrote a little bit about this, that the first subculture in in the Anglosphere, in the English-speaking world, um, has long been imagined to be Star Trek. Um, that mm-hmm. you know, Trekkies who talk in a, almost as much detail about Star Trek as you do about Ulysses. Um, but then I saw that it was pushed back to to Janeites, the readers of Jane Austen, who just pour mm-hmm. over every single detail as if these people were alive. So possibly the second one was the were the uh, were the Ulysses obsessives, the Joyce obsessives, who go to Dublin once a year and do this cosplay mm-hmm. and dress up and also you know talk with as much passion as you do i really want listeners to understand how much in this day the day of the book um, the reader gets as it goes on and if you don't put it down and you stay with it it will mix with your own imagination and your own experiences so much that you you feel present you feel joyce's dublin all around you and it's it's a wonderful way to kind of take back rabbit holes. I know it's the sort of, mm, you know, take mm. back the idea. I mean, there's no shame in getting lost in a story. There, right. you know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. danger in getting lost in fiction, posing as nonfiction and having it yeah. impel you to action as with QAnon. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you can get the same pleasures and much more in immersing yourself in a book like like Ulysses, and you have made it so clear how that is. And I'm so grateful to you, Raz, because you, you know, just to bring it personal, I, you are really the one who just modeled for Andrew, my brother and me, how to immerse yourself in a subject and express enthusiasm and refrain from snap judgments and just let it take you over in kind of raptures. Um, And I know that's something you did for us and you did for your students and you do in your lectures for the teaching company. So all those things, I'm very grateful to you for, Dad. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's very gratifying. That's great to know. That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Thank you, cult listeners, new listeners, all listeners for joining me today. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts. It really helps our cult expand and expand while other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88, where my pinned tweet points you to episodes of the show you might really like, and also at This Critical Pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look or you just want to give feedback, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. 
because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle, follow your crave. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.